Welcome to Episode 6 of Streams and Variations, the podcast where writing evolves. In this show, you will first hear a song based on a prompt. That song has then been passed on to a writer who has written a monologue inspired by that song. That monologue is then passed on to a songwriter who writes a song based on that monologue, then on to another writer, and so on. Like a game of broken telephone, each writer has only seen the work that immediately precedes their own. What elements of each piece will carry through? What recurring ideas and themes will we see? What changes will arise from the mind of each new artist? Let's find out. My name is Jamie Johnson, and I'll be your host. The act of creation is fostered by input. A lot of input. Listening to stories, hearing songs, viewing art, watching movies, reading books, looking out the window, listening to birds sing, dogs bark, cats meow. And the one part that all of these things have in common is silence. Not on the performer's part, but the receiver's part. The act of creation comes from the purposeful act of receiving in silence of letting the brain open up. In that silence, when you can shut off your inner monologue, you receive information that stirs memories and images that float to the surface, that make connections, that begin the process of creation. It's what we've asked these artists to do. Listen in silence. Like all of our writing streams, we've brought together the talents of six creators and placed them on strict deadlines. Each piece you will hear was created over the course of one week, and these new creations became the basis for the pieces that followed them. Listen closely and try to find the threads that bind these stories together. Try to see what each new creator brings to the process. See how the story evolves. The talkback for this stream, episode 6, will be released on April 19th. These talkbacks, discussions between myself, Co-producer Sean Erker and artists from the stream give a look into the creative process, insights into how the story was received by them and how we perceive their stories. These artists are an integral part of this storytelling experience. Their perceptions are what drive the process forward. Listen in as we find our way through the evolution of the story. Each full episode in Talkback is available through our website or you can subscribe through your preferred service so you don't miss any stories based on songs based on stories. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to tell people, your friends, your enemies, your mom or your dad, your crazy relations, they might like it too. This episode contains monologues written by Sam Chalk, Scott Garland, and Adam Bailey. These monologues are performed by Kate MacArthur, Melissa Aid, and Ed Carrick. And it contains songs written and performed by Eris, Sean Erker, and Timothy Sheldon. So sit back, listen intently, and let these artists carry you through this stream and its variations. Song one, It's Nice to See You, written and performed by Eris. to see you it's been a while since we sat down to talk i promise this won't end the way it did last time you called me 
Fish, Half Person, written by Samantha Chalk, performed by Kate MacArthur. Listen, I know what you think of me. I know you think I spend way too much time on YouTube, but I just want you to hear me out this time, okay? Don't shut me down. What I want is for you to just let me speak without interrupting me. I think this is really important, and I'm worried that you think that I'm just way too into conspiracy theories or whatever, and that that keeps you from listening to me. So please, just this once, I've bought you this latte and cookie. We're here together. I also have a cookie and a latte, and I just want you to hear me out. You can ask any questions you want when I'm done. I don't care. I just think it's important that you understand this. Okay? All right. So... Maybe you've seen this show, Planet Earth. Or, or uh, th- that, that other one, uh, Blue Planet? They always have an episode on the creatures that live in the deepest parts of the ocean. So if you've seen them, you know what I'm talking about. Yes, you know them. You know what those no-light, high-water-pressure fish look like. Not pleasant to the eye. They are ugly. 
Their shapes are not shapes we're familiar with because they didn't come into being in environmental conditions anything like what we know up here. They're nothing like us. They're completely different from us. It's a whole other world down there. They're scary, right? You have to agree they're at least scary looking. You're maybe not scared of them because they're so far away from us. But they're scarier than we think. Oceanographers have proven that there are creatures just like those ones, just as ugly, just as scary, that evolved in the same environmental conditions. They have proven that they are the real mermaids. Mermaids are real, and they pose a real threat to our way of life, right now. I know, I know you think this is nuts, but it's actually true, it's been proven. It's as much of a threat as climate change. And you can see how governments are either just refusing to deal with that, or like, pretending to deal with it while not actually dealing with it. Well, they're treating this mermaid situation in the exact same way. And I know why. I've thought about this a lot. And I've actually published some of these theories online so other people who know about this can read about it, and then maybe we can get closer to actual awareness about it, then hopefully to action. I know you think... I know you think I'm depressed. I know. But you're wrong. You really are. I think I'm really starting to do some good. Finally. So. Okay. Let's think about how and why we keep pets. We like pets that came to be in similar environmental conditions as us. That's just a fact. We like two eyes, a nose, behavior similar to ours, stuff that reminds us of ourselves. Dogs are needy. We love it. Cats are superior yet vulnerable. We love it. But snakes. People are always surprised to find out someone has a pet snake. We wonder what their owners see in them. What kind of interactions does one have with a snake that reflects human interaction? There's almost nothing. It's a different thing altogether. People and snakes? don't have a whole lot in common. But maybe people who love snakes or, or other weird pets relate to them on some level. You're like me. You skip most meals. You're like me. You shed your skin. You're like me. You like to take naps. I, I don't know. It's, it's just an example. Anyway, the point is not many of us relate to creatures that are just not at all like us. And so we don't think about them a lot. How many dogs do you see on Facebook every day? How many, like, praying mantises do you see? Hmm? You know what I mean? What? We tend to favor what we know is the point. So this is my theory for why so few people are paying attention to the, this mermaid issue. We don't want to think about mermaids in this way. We like how we currently think about mermaids. Like the Little Mermaid. We like her because she shares our wants and needs. I know my environment so well. I've accumulated a massive collection of shit, but it's not enough. I need more. She's needy, so we love her. Her thirst for novelty is unquenchable. No matter how many thingamabobs she acquires, it's not enough. Nothing is ever enough for her. I guess until she gets married in the end. But I can imagine she probably sings a song after that that's like, 
I've got shoes and dresses aplenty. I've got children and mealtimes galore. Household cleaning products? I've got twenty. But who cares? No big deal. I want more. Uh, <clears throat> bottomless need. Dissatisfaction. So human, right? Nothing alien, so we're not afraid to pay attention. The point is, we like human stuff. Stuff we can relate to. And we're kind of, well, we're kind of repulsed, in general, by things that are not like that. And so we ignore them. But I'm telling you, if we ignore it, we're fucked. It's not a joke. It's not a joke. I will tell you why soon, I promise, but you're not talking till I'm done. So, we could learn by thinking about what people who have snakes get out of having snakes. What makes them attractive to humans is something beyond behaviors or how they look. There's something those owners are relating to. And I think we really need to apply this kind of thinking to these mermaids. Because they're a real threat. And way more people need to start paying attention to them. It's not primarily our bodies that make us human. It's our souls, or our brains, or, or both, or more. I, I, don't, I don't know. But what I'm saying is... The oceanographers have figured out that what makes these mermaids mermaids is that they have souls. So they're basically like these wise, insightful, intuitive, still ugly as hell, half fish, half people. The fish half being their bodies, the people half is the soul. I know. I'm your crazy fucking conspiracy sister. I get it. But... You're hearing me out right now, and I honestly appreciate it. Here's why they're a problem. They're all about growth and learning new things and being open to new possibilities. They don't limit their understanding of themselves. It's their natural state of being. They don't have to go to therapy or learn hard lessons or be disciplined. They just are already. So you can see how it's only a matter of time until they take over, right? They're not like us. We like what we know. We like what we relate to, and we choose what's easy. We'd choose something painful and known over anything new time and time again. Because even though the situation is painful, we know we survived. So, like, baseline, we know we could survive it again. But we're not so sure if we could survive something else. Even something that's obviously looks like it's better than our current situation. And sometimes, even if we manage to move on to something better, we can trick ourselves into thinking that we actually don't love it, and then we retreat back into pain for familiarity's sake. This keeps us down. This is why we can't come up with solutions to our problems as a society. We've got all these people just retreating back into the known, over and over again. So it's obvious that we'd be dominated by creatures who don't do this, right? This openness that these mermaids have? It's a serious up on us. They're fearless. And it's only a matter of time. They're at the bottom of the sea now, but eventually they're going to grow so wise that they'll figure out a way to come up and dominate us. The oceanographers have been running computer simulations on it for years. I've looked at the studies, and the results are always the same. They're open, they're fearless, they're coming, and they're going to take over. All that's ever different is how long it takes. This is why I've been dedicating so much time to 
educating myself about this. I want to be a part of the resistance. This is why I'm not depressed like you think I am. I think you're just disregarding what I have to say because you don't like that I have a sense of purpose now. And that's okay. All I want is for you to think about this seriously, or just entertain it, even just for a bit. This is going to be my life's work. So if you're going to continue to have a relationship with me, you're going to have to just get used to it. Anyway, that's my piece. How's the latte? Song 2, JFK Jr. Written and performed by Sean Erker. JFK The Warren Commission There's no expose Who's killed by the deep state Ain't that always the way Oswald and Ruby Both CIA Marilyn knew they were planning to do so Hoover removed her they claim and Sir Han, Sir Han was a G-man for sure man sure sounds like a phony surname phony surname just asking questions Think for myself Like who pulls the strings And who takes the wealth Whether these vaccines Are really good for my health Whether an ice wall Surrounds the Antarctic shelf Can't you see so clear to me JFK Jr. still alive The plane crash was faked So he could escape Evade those that scheme and connive Some strings. There's always a reason for these terrible things. It's out of our hands, just shadows and crowds. So we're not to blame when these ups turn to downs. If you unblock me, open your eyes. Get what your friends say, telling you lies. 
See that I'm right, don't pretend you're surprised It's clear as the chemtrails that fill up our skies Can't you see? It's so clear to me JFK Jr. isn't dead when they turn on the power to those 5G towers, they'll trigger the chips in our heads. Chips in our heads, you see, it's so clear to me. JFK Jr. grew a beard. It's a perfect disguise So he could go hide Tell it was time to appear Can't you see you see it's so clear to me to Monologue 2, Shut Up, written by Scott Garland, performed by Melissa Aide. Shut up! Shut up! Shut up! No more talking from you. Don't even breathe too loud. If I hear one more cynical fucking note about red pills or deep webs or Buffy the Vampire Slayer's agenda to sterilize the male population, I swear they will never find your body. I'm going to talk now. You are going to listen. Now, are you listening? Don't say anything, just nod or shake your head. Are you listening? Good. Keep listening. My voice is not raised. My breath is steady. I'm not firing four-letter expletives at a disturbing rate or calling you a man-child with the emotional and intellectual depth of a thimble. Choosing my words carefully. This isn't anger. I can't be angry with you right now. I couldn't possibly find the time or space to be angry with you right now. Not with all the funeral arrangements, estate lawyers, and insurance companies to get screwed by, to say nothing of my two perfect children. Opinion. Should I tell them their father's in heaven? Or do we just let this be the first step towards atheism? Will this snowball into a conversation about the tooth fairy and Santa ending in us just ripping off that massive band-aid we call Mom is ill-equipped to answer life's questions and has designed lies to stop you from asking. Well, nothing? Yeah, that's where I'm at too. I can't possibly be angry with you. After all, maybe you think you're helping. 
somehow your fragile ego and hulking insecurity have you convinced that this is what helping looks like. At least I hope you think you're helping because you are very much not helping right now and now would be a great time to want to help. I need help. Your nieces need help. Your brother's family needs your help and you're not helping. And as much as that should make me angry with your anti-mask, anti-vax, QAnon quoting ass, I can't be angry with you. I'm too busy being angry with him. I'm angry with him. I'm so, so mad at him. How could he die like that? How, how does he, how does the body let that happen? Isn't there a genetic failsafe to prevent that level of cruelty? To stop a parent from doing that to a child? I, I didn't need him to lift up a bus or run into a burning building. Just don't die two days before your daughter's birthday party, you selfish prick. I am angry with my dead husband. And you're talking to me about chemtrails? If there is indeed a mass conspiracy that only you've tapped into involving world governments, Bible quotes, and Jordan, I literally shift myself into a coma, Peterson, then please tell me how does knowing that put my family back together? <sighs> Does the modulated voice of an internet troll have any miracle cures for death? Is PragerU gonna offer a non-accredited course in why your brother isn't gonna be put in the fucking ground next week? Was it all a lie spread by the left? Maybe you think you're helping, you're not. But despite all evidence to the contrary, I'm choosing to believe that you want to help. So. Before I go back home and cry myself to sleep, quiet sobs, it is a school night after all, I'm gonna ask you to do something, nod yes or shake your head no. The dog needs to be walked. The girls are too young to do it themselves and I really don't have the time. Can you please take him out of the house twice a day for the next little while? And if you changed his water to I would really appreciate it. What do you say? Can you help me out? Song three, Find Me Again, written and performed by Timothy Sheldon. Nothing ends. 
It's when nothing starts I'm a big old animal man This life feels better with a tan in the sand An age-old story, yes, we're apart It's hard to feel whole when you're ripped apart This is a chance to stop and say hi Dear girl and my baby boy I don't know what they've told you But it's not the whole story When you hear this You'll both be 18 And I'll be A voice inside your dream When I left you I had a broken heart I loved you Right from the start Was a flash in the pan You're beautiful Woman and man As a child, guys I know that it was hard But I was sick My mind was being ripped apart My babies I was never just a brain Me and you and you You'll find me again Staring back in truth It sounds like riddles But the words always are Like there's no such thing As being near or far You find it in the theory And you find it in your heart Nothing ever ends, nothing ever starts, it's always been up to you, so you choose. Find it in your heart Nothing ever ends Nothing ever starts It's always been up to you So you choose Monologue 3. Find Me Again. 
Written by Adam Bailey. Performed by Ed Carrick. Hamilton. Sudbury. Fort Mac. Saskatoon. And now tomorrow. And yes, everyone has told me, to the best of their ability, that tomorrow is not the day that I think it is. I'm still on anxiety meds because of it. Most likely it's not going to happen tomorrow. I mean, try to remember your 18th birthday. Fuck, mine was at a Kelsey's with all the waiters singing to me. Remember when they used to do that? You got a lava cake with a sparkler in it. Meanwhile, everybody else's dinner was being disrupted. There's a reason nobody does that anymore. But the point... The point is think about your birthday, and you realize that wherever their birthday is, whatever birthdays are this year, it won't be the place. The time their birthday won't be centered around me, no matter what the law says. But because that's what the law says, I'm on pins. This is nuts. This is why they gave me meds. Because it's delusional to think that two teenagers are going to get a manila envelope on their 18th birthday. That even if they did, they would open it on that day. The reality is, they probably already know. For a gay man creeping up on 50, I've spent a surprising amount of therapy focusing on the psychology of kids or teens. The truth is that they would have been curious, especially with two mums and no dad. Would have they asked for this information earlier? And their mums would have been allowed to give it to them earlier if they wanted to, perfectly within their rights. I'm sure Dee and Freya probably had fights over it. Or they could have just said, You gotta wait till your 18th birthday. But really, if they've waited this long, it doesn't matter what the law says. There's no way for me to enforce it. Well, no healthy way. I mean, I could just show up in Saskatoon. <laughs> like a madman. Because that stupid fucking court mandates that if they give me change of address notifications, for what? So that I can send them pertinent health information to force Dee and Freya to stay in touch with me? God knows when they moved Fort Mac of all fucking places. I dreamt I would have to go and rescue them from what only I could assume is like a, a pit of toxic masculinity. What the fuck are my kids doing in the oil sands? We always said we were going to try to raise them as queer as possible. As queer as possible. Fort Mac? <laughs> so, I started having these dreams. It's night, and it's winter because it's, well, northern Alberta, so it's always night and it's always winter, and I've flown up on a biplane, which lands in their desolate version of what I assume their downtown is instead of an airport, and even though I have their address, it's not how the streets work there, because Fort Mac is more foreign to me than, well, Lima, Peru. And so I 
I wander around this desolate place filled with oil workers who are all taller than me and have beards, which is very menacing under any circumstance. And I'm asking these giant men if anyone has seen a white girl named Anya and a boy named Dylan. And before anyone can tell me where they are, I wake up. I always wake up, knowing I won't know them and not wanting to truly know I won't know them even in a dream. What do I have in common with two kids who grew up in Fort Mac? Sondheim? Avenue Q? <laughs> Fuck. It's all just another reminder that I don't have the right interests for a man my age. I didn't do the man thing properly, and now I guess I'm paying the price. Oh, sorry. I don't think I'm supposed to be drinking on these meds. I'm still too nervous. Too nervous to follow the instructions, I guess, on my anxiety meds. I'll have another glass, though. Thanks. Four years ago, they moved to Saskatoon. I get my notification, and for the life of me, I can't think of what would have moved them there. Sudbury to Fort Mac made sense. Freya had always worked in extraction, hollowing out the earth. Saskatoon, in my mind, is, well, wheat. <laughs> it's growing, not taking. Oh, what on earth are they doing there? So, I looked at Freya's LinkedIn profile, thinking nothing of it. I just need to know, and it's Potash. She's working for Potash. Still extraction. And I know, and I've satisfied that itch, but huh, I get an email from Freya and Dee saying they're justifiably concerned, they say. Justifiably concerned, because they can see who looks at their LinkedIn profiles. And why Freya? Why her? Because she's the one whose jobs keep moving them around. But I get it. She's got a white wife, two white kids, and a world of emotions. Just like the rest of us, but her feelings. Apparently, I was supposed to know enough that if I had any questions, I could have contacted Dee. Well, like, people's LinkedIn profiles aren't completely and totally public. Like, contacting D wouldn't have going behind Freya's back, or some other unforgivable sin. Like they've even bothered to send me a photo. Eighteen years. Back when the courts decided that my rights as a parent were going to be wrapped up in a fucking manila envelope... They told me to write them a letter to say hello. So I wrote the two of them. One letter. Mistake! Eighteen-year-old twins are going to want to be seen as individuals. But, 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 but. But I knew them as babies. And I wrote a letter, well, my imagination of their future selves... No Hamilton, no Sudbury, no Fort Mac. 
I wrote them with the feeling of a father who was supposed to be in their life, not reduced to a sperm donor after the fact. After I had met them and had days with them and played with them, and for the first time in my life, I, I, I was a whole person. There was no more living in my head. I just loved them right off the start. We all did. And now, tomorrow. And it's not about the letter, really. The letter, that's what, that's what keeps me there. <laughs> After tomorrow, they don't have to give me a change of address notification. It's done. Hamilton. Sudbury. Fort Mac. Saskatoon. And it's over. Thanks for listening. I'd like to thank Sam Chalk, Scott Garland, Adam Bailey, Eris, Sean Erker, and Timothy Sheldon for creating pieces for this episode. And thank you to Kate MacArthur, Melissa Aid, and Ed Carrick for their performances. For more information about our artists, visit our website at streamsandvariations.com. If you like what you heard, tell everybody you know. You can find us at Streams and Variations on Facebook. On Twitter and Instagram, our handle is at VariationsPod. Let us know what you think by dropping us a comment or questions by email at streamsandvariationspodcast at gmail.com. Our next episode is the sixth in our talkback series, where we discuss this writing stream with writer Adam Bailey and singer-songwriter Eris. Come visit with us again and hear more songs based on stories based on songs. We look forward to you dropping in and giving us a listen. Bye for now.